Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 21st episode of Risk ever to be heard, it premiered in July of 2010, and it's called Be Afraid. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dared to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and I'm telling you right now to be afraid, folks. Be very afraid, because today you're going to hear stories from Janine Garofalo, Margaret Cho, Michael Showalter, and Maria Bamford. Is that a frightening bunch of motherfuckers or what? And they're all telling tales of times they were scared shitless. Times they truly faced the fear. But the scariest part is that we're starting with a story from me. I mean, 
Have you seen me lately? I have not been taking care of myself, people. I am a monster. All right? So here's a story about some monstrous behavior of mine that I told. We call it pushing the envelope. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a very Republican town. It is the most conservative town north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I knew I was gay from, like, the day I was born. I basically came out of my mother's vagina and said, Oh my God, I love boys' butts! So it was very hard for me growing up in Cincinnati because, you know, it's, it's not like homosexuality doesn't exist there. It's like sexuality does not exist there. Nevertheless, I went to a very liberal Jesuit high school and I kind of fell in love with my high school because my high school kind of fell in love with me because I was good in the musical theater stuff. (laughs) So I was kind of popular and my confidence started gaining and even though it was the early 80s, I did start to come out of the closet to some of my closest friends there. It was radical at that time. That was just not done then. Now, one of my friends, his name was Ben, and I especially loved to pull pranks on him, little jokes to kind of scare him with gay stuff. You know, like, boo, a dildo! Not that I was into that at that point. I was, I was still innocent as a flower, but I loved making little pranks and jokes. Well, one day, I had an idea at home. You see, at school, we had this inter-homeroom mail system, right? In homeroom, we would pass around a basket, and if you wanted to send a message to someone on the faculty or another student in another class, you'd just put an envelope into the inter-homeroom mail, and some student would pick it up and go deliver it. One day I'm at home, and I notice I have this condom. Now, I have no idea why I had a condom, because at 16, I had no need for it. But I had this idea, I thought, wait a minute. I know the perfect prank. What if I jerked off into this condom, pulled it off, put it in an envelope, wrote to Ben on it, put it in my book bag, and went to school the next day to drop it into the inter-homeroom mail? What could go wrong? Just classic American humor. Surely Tom Sawyer would have done the same thing if they'd have had prophylactics back then. Now, in retrospect, I look back and I'm like, what the fuck? What truly was I thinking? You know, I think that there are some things, you read the news, you'll read the news about like some vandalism that has happened, and you'll think to yourself, well, either that person had an acute case of schizophrenic paranoia, or they were 16. (laughs) When you're that age, you just do this stuff that you really, in retrospect, I don't know, I cannot explain it, but I did it. I jerked off into the condom, put it in the envelope, put it in the book bag, and put it in the inter-homeroom mail system. 
Now, like I said, it was a Jesuit high school, so the next class that day was called Moral Choices. <laughs> this is a class all about how sometimes in your life you might do something that might not sit that well with other people. And I thought it was downright fascinating. And I'm all caught up in the class when suddenly someone walks in with a note for the teacher and then someone is passing me a note from behind. It's another of my friends. I open this note and it says, Kevin, I know what's happening. I was in homeroom with Ben and he accidentally ratted you out. What happened was that Ben opened the envelope, looked at what was inside and said, Oh, Allison! And so the teacher immediately knew what was going on and sent it to the vice principal in charge of discipline. So I'm sitting there realizing what's happening and the teacher calls me and he says, you've got to go to the vice principal's office. And I am numb, okay? I am on pins and needles. I am thinking, wait a minute here. I've done the kind of thing that could get someone expelled. I did something fucked up for the sake of doing something fucked up. And now I am terrified of a figure of authority looking into my eyes and saying, you're fucked up. Well, let me tell you about Mr. Mayor. He was this little bald guy with a real Napoleonic complex who was really angry all of the time, and he was the baseball coach there at the high school. So he would get on the PA regularly, the PA system, and announce to all the students that something was going wrong and it had to be disciplined, and he'd always say, you know, are you on my team or are you not on my team? You want to play hardball? I'll play hardball. You do not want to play hardball. He loved the word hardball. Now, I had never exchanged a word with this man. I was terrified of him. And here I was about to have a very intimate conversation with him. So I walk into his office, and as I'm walking in, I realize, Kevin, your face is totally pale right now. Kevin, your lips are chattering right now. It couldn't be more obvious that you are guilty. But I sit down, and then I notice he looks rather shaken up, too. He's a little ashen-faced himself. And he just says, Allison, did you do this? And he pushes the envelope across the table to me. And I pick it up and open it up and take a look inside, and I just said, no! I can't imagine what this even is. <laughs> and he just stared at me for a while. And he finally said, okay then. And he dropped it in the wastebasket. And I got up and I walked out and I was totally bewildered. I thought to myself, that had to have been so obvious that I was guilty but he seemed to have just let me go. Can it be that he couldn't see what was right in front of his face? Well, years later, I had lunch with another member of the faculty, uh, in the director of the musical theater program. <laughs> and she said to me, you know what? Mr. Mayor just died. 
I said, oh no, that's a shame. She said, yeah, but there's more to it. <laughs> he was in the closet all those years. I said, Mr. Mayor? She said, yeah. And another thing, he absolutely adored your performance in our production of Godspell. <laughs> I said, really? She said, yeah, but there's more. She said, he heard through the grapevine that you had slowly started coming out of the closet to some of your friends and some teachers at school. And he was amazed by that. He was so impressed with you and thought the world of you. And it was at that moment that I realized he knew I was responsible for what was in that envelope. But we were teammates. <laughs> so he took one for the team. was the fantastical Matt Cheplick. You can look for more of his music on MySpace. Well, folks, Margaret Cho is a good friend of our show here. Uh, we rang her up on Skype last week, and she told us this true tale all about the trickster. So this happened a few months ago. I had just moved to Peachtree City, Georgia, which is a very small town about 40 minutes south of Atlanta. And I was there um, working on a TV show that filmed there. I had rented a house online. And um, it was a very modern, maybe was built in the late 90s. Kind of just cookie-cutter house that didn't seem different or weird. The first day I was there seemed a little weird to me. There was an energy around the house, not negative really, but I, I never really felt like I was by myself. There's something weird about it. Every night I would go to bed and there were a lot of footsteps. It seemed like there were people in the house with me, although every time I would get up and look around, uh, there was nobody there. And so I just kind of thought, well, this is just a new place. I, I'm not used to the sounds of the house. One morning I was in bed and I uh, just was laying there, and I, I just didn't want to get out of bed. I was supposed to go to work, and I just didn't feel like it. I was kind of just laying there, and the whole bed moved. Literally, all the legs of the bed were off of the ground for a second. I was really scared, and I got up, and I got out of bed. It was so surreal and so strange, yet I didn't have a witness. The next few days I had to get up at five in the morning which is what happens in television sometimes it's not very glamorous so I set my alarm clock I have three alarm clocks actually I use my telephone I use a wind-up clock and then I use a clock on my computer I set them all because I'm a very heavy sleeper so I set them all for 4 30 in the morning and I woke at 4 45 all of them had been turned off and I was in a panic and I rushed to work 
was very distressing. So the next day I had the same thing where I had a 5 a.m. call on. And so I set the alarms all in a row again. And the same thing happened the next day. All of them were turned off. Woke up on my own, 15 minutes late, ran to work. And I got really upset. That wasn't till then that I really started to get scared about it. And I was very self-conscious when I was in the house. I really didn't want to be there anymore. So that night when I got home from work, I spoke to the spirit. I said, I know that we're living here together. I'm not going to try to get rid of you. I'm not going to try to burn any sage. I'm not going to try to do any exorcism. I'll stay in the house with you. We can live together as roommates, but please don't scare me because I'm easily frightened. And obviously you are some kind of prankster and think this is funny, but I have to live here and I don't want to deal with that. At that point, I just thought, okay, I'm going to just deal with that this way openly. So that night I was in bed and I woke up near dawn and I was thinking about getting up. And as I lay there, I was on one side of the bed and I felt something or someone get into the bed next to me. The covers were pulled up and I felt something slide in next to me and the weight of a body laying in the bed next to me. I turned around very quickly and there was nothing there. I really felt like it was like I was in some sort of Japanese horror film, like The Grudge, where something gets in bed with you. And that is almost too much to bear. So that day I went to work. I, I didn't go back to bed after that. I was just petrified. I came back that afternoon and I made arrangements with a realtor to get out of my lease and get out of the house. After I'd made all the arrangements, I was on the phone in the afternoon and I'm talking to her. And after I'd finished everything and gotten a new apartment, I hung up the phone. And as soon as I hung up the phone, the oven behind me started beeping and it wouldn't stop beeping. I pushed all the buttons and nothing would appease it. It just was beeping so loudly and it was really insane and it wouldn't stop. It wouldn't stop. I had to call the maintenance person in charge of the house and they had to come over and as soon as the breaker was shut off then the uh, garbage disposal started erupting food that I had not made it was just food that I don't know where it came from because I, I hadn't cooked in the house at all so it was just erupting and vomiting up all this uh, vegetable matter I don't know where it was coming from so that was really weird so the house was just going crazy and so then the maintenance person had to turn off that breaker I just uh, felt like whatever presence was there wanted me out of the house. So at that point, I just uh, ran and got all my things together so quickly and was out of that house by that evening. I didn't return to the house until a couple of weeks later just to check on everything. When I went back to the house, in front of the house was a rabbit and it was somewhat dismembered, like its uh, limbs were kind of pulled off its body and it was just laying there, kind of positioned in a very threatening way. I was so scared by that, that I did not attempt to go in the house again. One of my co-stars, Jackson Hurst, asked if he could spend the night in the house. So I gave him the keys. And when he spent the night there, he said that he had walked outside. There's a pool outside and he walked out there and when he was outside the door deadbolted by itself behind him 
So I don't know how he got back in the house, but he managed to. That he was very quick to tell me that, yes, this house is indeed haunted. So I tried to find out more about why the house was like this and what was going on. And the realtor told me that the whole area was built on the Trail of Tears, which is a very famous migratory path where a lot of Cherokees were forced off of their land and many died. The entire time that I was being plagued by the spirit, I I always felt that it was a prankster, that it's a trickster, and that there was something about it that was playful, but at the same time, pretty sinister. And in Cherokee mythology, the symbol of the trickster is a dead rabbit. Sometimes when I am asleep, I feel clouds kissing me goodnight before they go downstairs to cook pasta for my parents who are spiders. Sometimes I dream my pillow is spiders. Weirdness abounds. We heard a little sound collage by Marshall York and Jed Hershon, and then a little tune by our friends King Baldwin. Here's another friend of mine, Michael Showalter. He's a fellow member of the state. You also know him from Stella, Wet Hot American Summer, and a bunch of other things. He started his story by promising the audience he'd tell us the meaning of life. But first, he told us all about stage fright. If you're a performer, people will ask you all the time, do you get stage fright? And I can't speak for the other performers, but in this kind of a situation, no, I don't. I don't know why that is. But when I am acting, (laughs) I get crippling stage fright, such to the point where I don't want to act anymore. But growing up, I wanted to be an actor. I I loved going to the theater and I I would go to see these plays as a very young kid and just be genuinely in awe of it. Live theater is just, it it absolutely captures my my imagination and my everything. So I thought, that's what I want to do. So, um, (laughs) cut to... And the meaning of life is, no. (laughs) Cut to, I am, I'm in New York, 
I'm trying to be an actor. I am auditioning for things. And finding the experience to be extraordinarily humiliating because you're in a room of people and like in every way you are being judged. Like you're, it's like judgment raw. It's just raw, unfettered, like I'm gonna shuck and jive and you're gonna have an opinion about it. And it's terrifying. So, and they're like. So I, I have this incredible fear about auditioning. 10 years ago, so okay, so I get a phone call from my agent. <laughs> Notice I didn't say his name because if I said his name, it would be less impressive. If I said I got a phone call from Dan, wouldn't impress you. I got a phone call from my agent. Sorry. So we have an audition for you at the Classic Stage Company to be in the restoration comedy, The Alchemist. How many of you have seen The Alchemist? This is a play that was written in the 1600s by Ben Johnson. Starring Dan Castellaneta. <laughs> the voice of Homer Simpson as the alchemist. Now, Restoration Comedy is pre-Shakespeare and the, the language is even more obtuse. It's not that funny anymore. That's the honest truth. But I thought, this is great. This is what I want to do. I want to be in the theater. I want to project my voice in the theater. So I am, I remember I had the worst flu ever. It was a freezing cold February, drizzling, rainy. I go to this audition and I, I don't even remember the audition, but amazingly, I got the part. I got the part of Dapper. And Dapper's, the, the, his quality was that he was dapper. <laughs> I had a couple of scenes, nothing major. It really was this thing of like, I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. I want, I'm here and I want to do the work. I want to get my hands dirty and do the work. We would all, a big cast, 10, 12 people in the cast and we would get together every day and we would go through the script and like, what does this word mean? And like they kept saying the word ging, G-I-N-G. What's a ging? <laughs> Let's go to the New York Public Library and research ging, the ging. So, soon into it I was like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> This isn't at all what I want to do. <laughs> and we started doing performances. And this is, what, this is when it really got to the point of where I started to feel like I was actually having an out-of-body, true stage fright. What it really was was the actor's nightmare, which is a term that they, that, you know, they say, which is like actors have this recurring nightmare. 
that it's the night of the show and right before they go on stage, they can't remember their dialogue or they never learned it. Sort of like the dream you have where it's like, you're back in high school and you, you go to class and it's the last class and you're like, I never went to any of the classes and I have that dream all the time. Everyone else in the cast but me was trained. They had gone to Juilliard, Yale, NYU. They would come to rehearsal in like raggedy old gray sweatpants and a hooded sweatshirt and they'd have on their like working sneakers and they'd come to the theater an hour and a half early and they'd like touch all the furniture on the set because it was breathing the furniture was breathing and they would like take it all they would take it they took they took the set now try to imagine this was since it was a restoration comedy at that time it was all men there were all the cast were all men 11 grown men taking a set <laughs> prancing around stretching in these weird grubby sweatpants touching the fucking furniture it's breathing on them <laughs> And I'm just going, oh my God, this is so fucking weird. I just, this is just horrifying to me. I'm like, just give me a fucking, I don't even know, man. It's such a bunch of bullshit. Look at these fucking buffoons. I'm cursing too much, I'm sorry. So, and I would show up with like a cup of coffee and a cigarette and I'd be like, La la la, I'm ready. <laughs> Such to the point that the other actors would be like, um, kind of noticed you haven't been doing warm-ups, Showalter. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, I just, uh, it's just kind of not my thing, you know? And they're like, well, how do you get into character then? <laughs> I mean, if you don't do the warm-ups, if you don't touch the, f the furniture, if you don't feel it, if you're not feeling the stage breathe on you, then how do you get into character? And I'd be like, right before I go on stage, I go like, I'm Dapper, I'm this guy. <laughs> and I walk funny, and I sort of talk with a British accent. <laughs> and I gesticulate like I'm, like I know what I'm doing. Like you fucking assholes. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> so, one night in particular, I go there, I, it's, we're doing this show, and, and it was a long show, and it was, it was meant to be a comedy, but no one could understand what was going on. I mean, it was, the language was so obtuse that you genuinely could not, it, not even Homer Simpson could rescue this play. <laughs> and I'm backstage, and it's like about to be my entrance, and I've done many plays over, the, I've done many plays up to this point. I, Oh God, uh, I played Osric in Hamlet. A hit, a very palpable hit. That was my line. And then, <laughs> I was, uh, I played Fagin in the Broadway musical. Uh, not, it was on a Broadway, but I played Fagin in Oliver. <laughs> when I was 12 years old. Fagin, who is an 80-year-old man. 
and described in the Charles Dickens novel as disgusting to look at. I played him when I was 12 years old. I was in the Crucible. I played Judge Hawthorne. This, the lesser of the two judge roles. Now that, and I'll get to the meaning of life very quickly, but I was in rehearsal for cru The Crucible. I was in high school. And my character I was wearing, I remember vividly, I was wearing uh, a little pilgrim hat. I had a little quill pen. And I'm taking notes as Judge Danforth and John Proctor are arguing. Because they are the two actors who have dialogue in the scene. <laughs> I'm taking notes. That's what I was told to do. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't acting. What I'm doing, this isn't acting. I'm just pretending to take notes. How does my character feel about this argument that John Proctor and Judge Danforth are having about Goody Osborne and the devil? And I thought to myself, I'm angry! I'm really, really angry! This argument is upsetting me! So I started to gesticulate wildly. But I couldn't say anything because I didn't have any lines. So I'm on stage while the real thing is happening going, Yeah! Okay, guys, stop, stop. Show Walter. Yeah? What are you doing? Just doing the scene. What, what, what do you mean? Why are you acting like that? I'm angry. You're pulling focus, Michael. And I'm like, what's pulling focus? He says, you're distracting the audience away from what is important. So, I put my little pilgrim hat back on, got my quill pen, and I died inside. <laughs> the Alchemist. I go on stage for my entrance, and I say my lines, whatever, mail it in, I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, you're doing seven shows a week, I mean, you, can't, you can't give 100% every performance, you can't. So then I'm, then I'm sitting on the stage for a good chunk of time, very similar to The Crucible, watching the two leads in the play doing a scene. And then I had a pure out-of-body experience. And this is a redundant statement, but it was truly terrifying, which was, this is all fake. <laughs> like because like there's again two grown men being like but I do this right here and they're like doing this and they're wearing costumes and they're dressed all you know and I'm going it's fake I could hey woohoo it's a joke this is, this is fake none of the, this whole thing it's bullshit 
I was a hundred and thousand percent not in character. <laughs> and I'm just looking out of the audience and I'm being like, I was like this close to being like, hi. It was everything I could do to not just be like, hey everybody, how are you? So, it's funny now, but at the time it really scared me because it was everything I thought I wanted. It was this moment of total no return, which is I don't want this. These guys who are letting the set breathe on them are the real thing. And I actually had this incredible respect for them after I sort of fully realized, like, I'm not that. And they are that. And they're who I, you know, admire. So I'll get to the meaning of life now. So this then led to all sorts of other stuff because basically the walls of Jericho were coming tumbling down, you guys. I don't even know what reference I just made. I have no idea what the walls of Jericho are. But I know that Jericho had walls. I know he did. I know he did. It did. There were. I know there were walls there. And they came tumbling down. And it was all about what is the fucking purpose of this? Because I'm on stage going, why am I here? What's this all about? And it was keeping me up at night. It was waking me up early. I would wake up in the at four o'clock in the morning, having gone to bed two hours earlier with fear gushing out of me. And then I had a realization, which was, <laughs> that the meaning of life is to live. Thank you very much. Yo, yo, the world is a scary place today. We got oil in the Gulf. We got jean shorts. But me, I'm scared of a lot of things. Yo, I'm scared of the grass and I'm scared of the trees. And I never have sex because I'm scared of birds and bees. I'm scared of cankles and I'm scared of knees. And my apartment smells weird because I'm scared of Febreze. I don't watch the History Channel because I'm scared of the Third Reich. And I rap with the blindfold because I'm scared of the mic. I also am scared of the darkness. Wait, why is it so dark in here? Oh my god, I've gone blind! Oh, oh no, thank god it's... Here we go. Ah! A microphone! Ah! That was Dan Rosen there, the world's most frightened rapper. Well, one of the most buzzed about comedians out there right now is up next, the lovely and utterly charming Maria Bamford. Now, Maria opened up to us about something seriously scary. She now knows there's a type of guy out there that it's smart to be afraid of. We call this the hurtin' kind. My biggest fear is someone not liking me or being angry at me or any sort of version of that. I came to Los Angeles because of the fact that people here are always overly supportive, telling you 
how you're great and you're amazing and brilliant. Really love to see you again, even though that may be dishonest. Uh, I appreciate hearing it. I uh, love hearing it. I started dating somebody who was delightful, a delightful person and extremely angry, extremely angry. In fact, on our, one of our first dates, uh, the person went in sort of a, a rage about people like me. And when I say people like me, it wasn't these descriptors, but it was as if he could have described me. It was a white, blue-eyed, blonde women who do podcasts uh, uh, and live in uh, San Fernando Valley of California. At the time of hearing him go into the radio and using words with B word and W word and all the other words, the C word, the mm, what was it, W, no, I used the W word. My first uh, instinct, of course, I started to shake a little bit. I was a little bit scared. But I think I thought, oh, this, you know, he hates me. And this is, this is a great challenge uh, to, to show him uh, that perhaps I am, uh, I am likable. And it got worse and worse, as they do. Uh, you know, it was just uh, very odd and yet uh, very enticing for a person who wants to be liked uh, because you think, oh, well, if I could just do one more thing, then I could finally make this person think that I was okay, that I, was a, that I wasn't all the things that he s said I was and people of my ilk were. You know, I was generous and kind and thoughtful and, uh, and I was on time and um, I didn't F people over up the... A with my effing F W F B. You people ask, which I would ask. I would just go, oh my god, people are such idiots who stay in violent relationships. And and he had said, uh, you know, I will never hit you. I thought, well, it sounds like I'm getting a beat down uh, pretty quick. You have to mention that. Uh, I think it's time to brace, brace for impact. People just have an actual belief that they are right, that they have a sense of righteousness about doing that, that that's the problem. It isn't anger management. It isn't uh, mental illness. It's that they, they believe that they have a right to do that. One thing I notice is that they are actually quite good at managing their anger, but he managed to only show it at me. <laughs> Uh, he bit me a couple times. Interesting choice. And it was very, you know, it's very textbook. Like he bit me and then said, oh no, I didn't do that. Well, wow, I was there. It just happened a second ago and you, I'm bleeding. Hmm. I think we had one last uh, thing where he told me, you know, a number of uh, epithets and that I had a, had a real problem and maybe I should go see a therapist because I was crying and shaking too much and uh, <laughs> and um, so I did do that. As soon as I got in there, like I just like, like it was like one of those calm, you know, the candles and the and the positive affirmations and the nice lady with wooden earrings with a t-shirt that says uh, start a revolution, love your body. I just felt relaxed for the first time in a long time. Like, oh, I thought, oh, I've got to get out. You know, I've got to end this. This is crazy. 
But the one thing is I do not feel afraid of people not liking me anymore. Um, I don't feel afraid of us, you know, just letting someone go if they say, hey, you're a F and B. Like, yeah, you could be right. Goodbye. <laughs>we heard a sound collage there by Bradbury and then a song by the phenomenal Roosevelt Dime. Check those guys out at RooseveltDimeMusic.com. We love those guys. Now, one last dip into the live show at 92Y Tribeca we did a few weeks back. This is from our very dear friend, and she really knows the meaning of taking risks on stage, the one and only Janine Garofalo. We call this Awake at Night. not a particular thing that frightened me that I lived through. This is more, I'm going to concentrate on the aspect of what keeps one up at night. In my case, uh, more specifically, what keeps me up and I don't know what keeps you up at night. So I cannot uh, discuss it. I can only tell you what keeps me up at night and there's two levels of it. There's a macro and a micro level. Now there's the garden variety macro level uh, Fox News type of nonsense that, 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 that type of cultural coarsening and, um, and dumbing down. That is not new to this era, but as we only exist in our particular eras, you can only experience it in the era you experience it in, um, more fully than just reading about injustices that happened in the past. 
that keeps me up and revenge fantasies on people uh, on people like Glenn Beck and and his type of fan base that 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 uh, because it because they do bring us all down. I mean, if they kept it to themselves, like the Amish, and I don't mean, the Amish are nice. I'm just saying that if they were to, you know, to, to do their own thing, the right-wingers, instead of dragging us all down, I wouldn't need the revenge fantasy, but I don't bathe my enemy in white light whatsoever. I'm not mature enough to do that, and they don't deserve it. And when I say enemy, I mean, a, I don't mean a personal enemy, I mean like a Glenn Beckish enemy, or a Michelle Bachman. They don't deserve your white light. Be that as it may, what is these things? Um, and now at the micro level, I brought, these are some unfortunate externalities of what keeps me up at night, and then when I fall asleep, apparently I'm doing a lot of damage to myself with personal, I guess I'll call it self-flagellation. The degree of, of self-doubt and self-loathing, and this is in no way a poor me story. I expect, would expect no sympathy from you from telling this story. Now it is me feeling sorry for myself, admittedly, but I would never expect you guys at all. It's, a, it's such a, uh, it's self-loathing plus obviously intense narcissism um, to be so, you know, uh, involved in this. But I, I seemingly over the last few years, actually I'll put, I'll put while I'm speaking, this is, uh, these are wrist, I guess sort of wrist guards from cranial nerve issues I get so upset at night I guess uh, when I'm falling asleep and stuff and also when I'm awake I'm like this and also I had to have this side of my teeth re-anchored to my gum line from grinding so much they started pulling off their moorings uh, it's disgusting I know Just, and, that out, and that adds a whole nother level of my personal repugnance factor like that that bothers me how I've become physically repugnant um, and that's not saying oh fishing for a compliment at all that's unfortunately um, that as if I didn't have enough of the odds stacked against me the, this is from the wrist problems I have from the cranial uh, nerve that goes down from doing something at night. I also frequently wake up with scratches on my back and on my face. And I mentioned the dental bills. Now, I don't know how much Dick Cheney's responsible for these or and then how much is me. But what has been happening over the last 10 years or so, it's getting worse. And I think I inherited this trait from my father because my father is a big one for self-flagellation. He doesn't get up on stage and discuss it. He's much more stoic than that. But uh, I can recall growing up uh, behind his neck in the back seat as he's driving, I s frequently would see my dad just shaking his head, you know, uh, obviously talking to himself and going over things that upset him, but about himself. And I have unfortunately inherited this terrible trait of constantly reliving embarrassing or awkward or shameful things starting from when I was cognizant, which is about the age of four, 1968, to 2010. That's a long laundry list of horrifying, and it can be the most mundane of, oh, I can't believe uh, first day of school. This is just an example, and this is, again, not poor me. This is just garden variety nonsense. Uh, first day of school, of high school, I fell down the stairs and into oncoming students as the classes were let out. But all my books and stuff splayed on the floor, and my grandma had bought me as a, as a treat, as a gift, a notebook that said, Rocket Baby All Night Long, with 50, like 50s dancers on it. Um, and it, oh, it was right there um, as I fell. And that became just a personal thing to like, oh, dude, 
rock you, baby, all night long. Like that, like that'll happen. But then, um, much more significant, like personal, sexual, or um, just I can't believe I said that. And I used to be a heavy drinker, so believe me, there's a lot of I can't believe I said that to so and so. That this could have happened 15, 20 years ago, and I will relive it with great clarity over and over again, like a terrible, dumb song that stuck. Um, for a while, the theme from Maud was stuck in my head. Um, the lyric, I could not get it out. It, it's, like, it's that annoying. Like, the theme from Maud. A great show, but uh, that. And so these, I also have a back brace, a lower back brace, because apparently I'm doing damage to my lower lumbar region, too. I don't know how I'm sleeping, but I'm assuming it's terribly um, violent. Um, and then um, you know, my boyfriend Pete will say thing. Not only did this is more important. He's like, you were snoring again last night. So in the di- and kicking. So I'm snoring, kicking. Now I drool like crazy too. And on airplanes, as a new function of aging, again, just to add insult to injury, I'm just soaked. My sweat jacket is soaked. And um, that, I'll think about that. Like why? Why? I don't think anyone else in my peer group is repugnant. Like, I don't know. Why? And, and then, and here's the part again, this is embarrassing to admit, but I think part of the reason it's gotten worse is in the last nine years, my show business career has hit what they call a down cycle. And um, it feels like rejection. Now, the thing is, I can expect no sympathy and ask for none because it's an elective profession. No one makes you do it. But in my case, I don't have any other marketable skills. I really cannot enter the job force or the work world guns a-blazing. I can't do anything. Um, I really can't do anything. I can't follow simple directions. I'm not very bright. I'm intellectually curious. That's a plus. But I'm not, I'm not very bright. Um, I'm, I have tons of social anxiety. I'm frightened of technology um, and all of the, all that that implies. Um, so, I, and I also, I like to do it. I love doing stand-up comedy. I've been doing it for 25 years. I have control over that. That's not in a down cycle. I can always do it and I like it. The acting part of it is not up to me. Uh, I have no control over it and clearly my services have not been uh, particularly wanted for the last nine years in that area. And I, it, I think it has enhanced confirming my worst fears of, oh God, you're uh, terribly untalented. No one really likes you. Like that, that uh, with, with this down cycle, because it feels like in, in, in show business or entertaining entertainment, it's like a Red Rover game. And sometimes, for no reason whatsoever, some are invited to come over. Red Rover, Red Rover. And so uh, in the 90s, I got a lot of opportunities I did not necessarily deserve. Some I was okay at, but a lot of them I was like, it's just you get in the mix and you get to do stuff. And then what happens is sometimes then you don't get to do anything. Like there's, you get no opportunities, some of which you might deserve. Does that make sense? And I know this sounds terrible. Uh, who gives a shit? You know, I mean, I'm not in a Bosnian rape camp, and how dare I? I understand that completely, and I accept your condemnation if you're sitting there going, are you fucking kidding us with this? Um, but I can only tell you my story. You know, they asked me, and, um, and I was half, I, 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 did, I, I can only tell you um, my personal 
uh, issue, and I understand it's not important, and I understand um, many, you know, 90% of the globe lives on less than $2 a day. Believe me, and I feel terrible about it. Uh, part of, one of these is because of that. Um, I do, I do. And honestly, I can't even stand it when animals that are animated are treated badly. I honestly, I, I cannot stand it when even a cartoon dog is sad about stuff. I, I am such an animal nut. Um, so I'm not, I'm not heartless and completely selfish. One time I did this, this show called Fox and Friends Morning Show. And then I had a brief reprieve from this self-loathing. And honestly, I thought it was going to last. Because I left Fox and Friends going, oh, wow, I'm not like them. And I was so happy I walked home. Even though I was crying because I'd had such a terrible time on the show. And I started smoking again. But that was more because of Connie Chung. Don't get me started. Can't, we don't have time. We don't have time for what Connie Chung did. But um, I, I remember walking down 6th Avenue going, wow, I'm not like... The people on Fox and Friends, uh, my parents must have done something right. You know, I, I have empathy. And that is what separates us. You know, I, I, uh, there's that phrase, there's more that binds, you know, that there we're more alike than different. I actually don't ag agree with that. I think that there's more that separates us. I don't have anything in common with these teabaggers, this uh, tea party movement, the teabaggers. I didn't mean that as an anti-gay <laughs> thing. The Tea Party people, who, by the way, the first Tea Party was scheduled for Inauguration Day when Obama was inaugurated, because clearly they were so upset with the job he was doing before he'd even done it. But, you know, I have nothing in common with these racists and these Arizona Papers, Please people, uh, because they, have, they don't have empathy, and they, they may be book smart, some of them. I, I have my doubts, but some of them may be book smart, but what they lack is emotional intelligence. I feel like I'm, uh, at least I care about my emotional intelligence. So there's that, but the problem is, they're still out there, and they're destroying us, quite literally, the, the right-wingers of any nation in any era, but we happen to be here. So that is happening, and then also my fucking self-loathing has reached such a fever pitch, and my knowledge of it's the dumbest waste of time, and how, how self-indulgent and ridiculous then that level piles onto it. I don't know how many more braces I can put on my body, and I, if my teeth come off again, can they be reattached a second time? I don't know. And then how fucking gross is that if I don't have teeth? Do you know what I mean? Like, that, what if I lose my teeth? And then try, you know, as a 46-year-old lady, uh, uh, can I be an actor, please? Uh, please? I can't do anything else. I don't know what, I don't have any money anymore. Actually, I was fiscally prudent in the 90s. I, was, I did one thing right in the 90s. I was fiscally prudent. But anyway, uh, now I will replay this. And a few of your faces were very discontent with me. And I'll, I'll replay that for a while this evening. But um, you guys have been very nice to indulge me. Thank you very much, and good night. I saw the devil mask. It keeps me awake at night. I crawled through broken glass. It keeps me awake at night. Oh, I've got to get some sleep tonight. Tonight. La 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 la. 
Eliza, how are you? Good, great to see you. Give me a hug. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, let me get that. My hair is kind of oh. shedding everywhere. Sorry. Sparkling oh. water or something? Mary, could just you like, bring us in some sparkling water? If you've got like water in a rain gutter, just what? that's all I deserve. Just, yeah, gutter. I don't, don't get uh, any trouble at all. You just, are priceless. You are one of a kind. Look, the <laughs> good, good news is huge article about you in Variety. I mean, the press you're getting, you're just exploding. Everyone wants oh, to know no. more about Leslie. It's which, over, right? Is that what you're trying to tell me? What? Oh, no. sorry. Are... Can I have somewhere to throw? My nails are falling off. Oh, um, oh yeah. Here's is there somewhere here's I could throw? Right okay, here. just, just if I could put those. Close. I'm sorry. I'm oh, so gross. Don't even I'm think about it. Disgusting. Don't even. Th- that happens all the time in this office. That just happened. Mary, could you call my manicurist? Set up an appointment with Leslie. Could you grab my toe? Oh, that's your toe. Yeah. I was wondering whose toe that was. It's mine. Oh, here. You- Go. I guess you just put it in your pocket or something. You want me? It doesn't matter. Who it needs it? It's just, I'm so, already uh, last bit of good news. We just got a new offer for a movie. You're going to be starring lead role opposite Leonardo DiCaprio. Big time, baby. This is it. This is it for yeah, you. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I'm huh? pretty sure they want me to... Yeah, is that a nipple on the ground right that, there? That's mine. Oh my that's God. mine. How did that, did that fall through the bottom of your dress? Yeah, I just... My so skin's beautiful. been sloughing off. It's a beautiful nipple, by the way. Thank you. It's a nice size. Do you know, I know you have to say that. I like the larger nipples like that. It's saucer-like. I know. Yeah. It's, you could it's put a sexy. teacup on it. It's, it's disgusting. So, how does it feel to be such a hot shot? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, like a hot shot of horror. That's what I am. I'm the worst thing that ever happened to this town. Did I just step on? What did I just step on? That's my eye. Oh, my God. I stepped on your eye. I just, I, I'm everything sorry. is just That's so my bad. I no, should have. No, it's my fault. My eye shouldn't have been on the floor. It should be in my face like a normal person. I should have watched where I was going. I'm no, sorry. it's on me, not you. I'm the worst. Well, we heard a song by Marshall York and then an improv by Nate Starkey and Ashley Ward. <laughs> it's kind of hard to keep track of who's named what in that improv, so we call it Eliza Leslie and Leslie. This has been Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. And remember what this lovely lady once said about Risk. I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. 